Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 38 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm honored to welcome Alex Filipinko, an award-winning astronomer, distinguished professor, and fellow at the University of California, Berkeley. He shared in both the 2007 Gruber Cosmology Prize and the 2015 Breakthrough Prize in Fundamental Physics. A member of the National Academy of Sciences, Filipinko was awarded the 2004 Carl Sagan Prize for Science Popularization. And he was a member of both teams that in 1998 discovered the accelerating expansion of the universe, probably driven by dark energy, a discovery that was honored with the 2011 Nobel Prize in Physics. And that's the topic of today's episode, the mystery at the core of dark energy. Filipinko joins us from Berkeley, California. Alex, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Well, thank you, Bruce. It's a pleasure to be here. First off, let's start with some basics. As I noted uh, last month in a review article in Astronomy Magazine, our universe is made up of, what, 70% dark energy, 26% dark matter, and 4% normal, or so-called baryonic matter. Have these estimated percentages changed much in the last 20 years? Yeah, not too much, uh, surprisingly, perhaps. The uncertainties have decreased. In other words, we're much more um, certain about the values now, but the overall numbers haven't actually changed too much. Now, of course, before 1998, it was 0% dark energy, right? (laughs) But since then, it's been about 70%. And of course, uh, it was that way before 1998, but we just didn't know it. And what can cause uh, these estimates to change? Well, you know, um, as the measurements get more precise and accurate, the numbers change. And moreover, As there are different types of measurements made using, for example, type 1a supernovae and the cosmic microwave background radiation and the growth of structure in the universe, you know, as you include more techniques, you get more constraints on the numbers. And so they could have in principle changed, but in fact, they didn't change that much. It's just that we became more confident of the of the numbers. So for listeners who may not be familiar with either dark energy or dark matter or confused by both, they are termed dark because they're simply unknown. But please explain the difference between dark matter and dark energy. Right. So we call them dark not just because they're unknown, which is true, they're unknown, but they're also invisible. They don't emit light. So they're dark in that sense as well. But basically dark matter is invoked in order to have enough mass in our galaxy and in other galaxies to keep them gravitationally bound. We see the stars moving around really quickly, and if there weren't additional matter beyond what is visible binding those stars to the galaxy, they would just go flying off, okay? Same thing with clusters of galaxies. The individual galaxies in a cluster are moving around so quickly that the cluster would quickly become unbound, you know, it would just fly apart unless there were additional matter holding it in, matter that we don't see. And there are so many clusters of galaxies that they're not just, you know, chance superpositions of, you know, galaxies in the, in the universe for a fleeting moment. They're, they're long-lived structures, so they've, they've got to be bound, and you need dark matter to, to bind them together. Okay. So dark matter is attractive. Now, dark energy is the other side of the coin. Looking at the distances between galaxies, or more correctly, between widely separated clusters of galaxies, those distances are increasing because of the expansion of the universe, but at a faster and faster rate, an accelerating rate. That's what we mean by the accelerating expansion of the universe. And for that, you need something that's not gravitationally attractive, but rather has sort of a repulsive effect. And that's what we call dark energy, that substance, whatever it is, that causes this acceleration of the expansion of the universe. But to be clear, at this point, 
theorists don't really understand what makes up dark matter, and they don't really understand what makes up dark energy. We have ideas, but no conclusive evidence. Yeah, that's right, Bruce. You know, this is 95% of the universe, right? And we know of its existence, the dark matter and dark energy, but we don't know what it is. So anyone who says that, you know, astrophysics is done, it's dead, nothing left to be discovered, <laughs> you can tell them, you know, well, what about the origin and nature of 95% of the contents of the universe? Because only 5% is this normal or baryonic matter, as you correctly called it. So, yeah, you know, different astrophysicists have their preferences. You know, there's various ideas for dark matter. The popular idea for the past few decades, the most popular idea has been WIMPs, weakly interacting massive particles. These are particles left over from the Big Bang. But, you know, laboratory physicists have been searching for them and have not found them. That doesn't mean they don't exist, because not all of parameter space, so to speak, has been explored. It's like, you know, you're wandering around in some gigantic dark ballroom, and there's a chair somewhere, and you haven't yet hit it. But it doesn't mean that it's not there, you know. Right. But nevertheless, the searches that have been going on have not found any clear evidence of these dark matter particles that are wimps. And so other ideas are being explored now, axions and fuzzy dark matter and, and various other things. And then with dark energy, it's even worse. You know, we don't even really know how to find actual experimentally verifiable particles. It's, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not particles. It's, a, it's an energy field of some sort, or it's maybe the, the vacuum energy, the vacuum energy associated with space itself. And so there, we're not even sure how to look. There's no particular particle, like a wimp or an axion or something like that, that we're looking for. It's just some kind of an energy field, either a vacuum energy associated with space itself, or maybe some other sort of energy field permeating the universe. But there's no particle component that experiments can try to find, or at least not ones that have been developed very well up to now. So in 1998, uh, you were part of both teams that, that initially were looking for the onset of cosmic deceleration. And instead, uh, ironically, you and colleagues on both these teams ended up finding independently that the universe's uh, expansion was actually speeding up initially five to six billion years ago. And that acceleration has been the dominant force in the universe. Yeah, that's right. So it's not so much that we were looking for the onset of cosmic deceleration, because that would have happened right after inflation ended, which, you know, was a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of a second okay. uh, age for the universe. It, there's no way we could look back that far. Um, you know, light can't even reach us from back then because the universe was opaque and ionized. But what we were trying to measure was the amount of deceleration. And if it was a large amount of deceleration, that would mean that the universe would stop expanding someday and recollapse, the big crunch, so to speak. Right. Or if there's not much deceleration, then the expansion would continue forever and the universe would be eternal. So we were trying to measure the amount of deceleration. But instead, as you said, we found acceleration in at least in the past most recent five billion years or so. There were these two teams, mostly independent. I say that because I was the one person who at one time or another was a member of both of the teams. I started out with Saul Perlmutter's Supernova Cosmology Project, but then I switched to Adam Reese to Brian Schmidt's um, high Z or high redshift supernova search team. So other than that they were independent. But yeah, the Nobel Prize can only go to a maximum of three recipients. Nevertheless, these gentlemen understood that without the rest of us working hard in the trenches, the discovery would never have been made. So they generously used a significant fraction of their prize money to fly the rest of us out to participate in Nobel Week in Stockholm in December of 2011. And that was just a wonderful experience. You know, a great series of of parties and banquets and, you know, celebrations. So we got to participate in most of it. Of course, we weren't ourselves in the ceremony itself where the prize is 
uh, awarded, but we did get to go to the banquet thereafter and, and the big ball and things like that. So it was really fun. Well, that's fabulous. And congratulations again for being a part of that. Thank you. So, but you guys were not the first to do supernova surveys. As I noted in an article in Cosmos magazine in Australia, uh, a Danish team began searching for such highly redshifted supernovae in 1986 using the Danish 1.5 meter telescope in Chile. And after two years of looking, they had only found one type 1A supernova at a relatively low redshift and already some 18 days past its brightness peak because such supernovae only last a few weeks. And then, as I noted in Astronomy Magazine just recently, your observations began when your two teams tried to survey a distant Type 1A supernova. Um, such supernovae are thought to be triggered by the accretion of matter onto a white dwarf, the burned-out, hyperdense carbon and oxygen-rich remnant of a dying sun-like star. So Type 1A supernovae, always occur in binary star systems? Yeah, let me, let me just comment on the Danish team first. It was quite a breakthrough what they did. They found one at a redshift of around 0.3, I think, which is several billion light years away, right? A look back time of several billion years, which was considerably higher than the low redshift type 1A supernovae that had been found up to then. The reason they couldn't really continue was they did at that time, they didn't really have the telescope resources or the computational power to find lots and lots of these things, okay? But they did demonstrate proof of concept, which was an important point in the development of this field. And then going to the Type 1As, yeah, we concentrate on the Type 1As because they come from a white dwarf that is gaining material from a companion star, either a more or less normal star like our sun or what our sun will become in some five billion years, a red giant. Or in some cases, they gain the material from another white dwarf. The two white dwarfs spiral in toward one another. And when they get close enough together, the less massive white dwarf, which is less tightly bound by gravity than the more massive white dwarf, uh, gets disrupted. It's called a tidal disruption, and material from that disrupted white dwarf then settles onto the surface of the of the other more massive white dwarf. In either case, that white dwarf that gains the material gets close to an unstable limit known as the Chandrasekhar limit. And at that point, just before the Chandrasekhar limit, a series of uncontrolled thermonuclear reactions starts at or near the center of the white dwarf and just completely obliterates it. It's just like a it's like a you know a nuclear explosion basically rather than a controlled thermonuclear reactor like our sun. This blows the thing apart. It always happens at about the same mass, roughly 1.4 times the mass of the sun. It's always, you know, basically the same type of star. And so you expect them to be nearly identical in their observed properties, and moreover, a couple of billion times as powerful as the sun. So they can be seen at very large distances, and if you've calibrated how intrinsically powerful or luminous they really are by looking at nearby examples, then you, know, you can compare the apparent brightness of the distant one with the known luminosity, thus get a distance, and thus know how far back in time you're looking. So that's the basic technique. Perlmutter uh, actually started looking for these supernovae in 1988, only a couple of years after the Danes. And he's a colleague of yours still at the UC Berkeley, I, I assume. And his, yeah. his mm -hmm. project was called the, the Supernova Cosmology Project. It uh, began observations on the Anglo-Australian 4-meter telescope uh, outside of Sydney, Australia. Uh, and then a few years later, American-born Australian researcher Brian Schmidt, an astronomer at Australian National University in Can Canberra, led a team called the High-Z Supernova Search, and High-Z just means a, a high redshift, they began looking using Chile's Blanco for a meter in 1995. And they surveyed a million galaxies a night and found dozens of supernova. So within two years, the two teams, this uh, High-Z Supernova, 
search had found 14 usable objects taken from all over the sky. Yeah, so it took a few years for Saul's team to build an appropriate camera and use it at the Anglo-Australian telescope. They had quite a bit of bad weather, bad luck in that sense, um, and it was a, a new type of camera that they had to develop. So I think the, the, f- the first supernova that they found wasn't until about 1992, uh, despite starting the project formally in 1988. So, you know, when you're starting a, a new type of project like this, it, it takes a while to get going. And then, uh, then Schmidt's team joined in the race, and they used the, the Blanco 4-meter telescope, as you said. And that already had a nice camera built for it, so we were able to, or Schmidt's team was able to use that right away. Altogether, the two teams each found a, a few dozen supernovae. I think Schmidt's team had 14 plus two from the Supernova Cosmology Project, and the Supernova Cosmology Project had 42. You know, with such a small sample, the supernovae were not yet quite all over the sky. They were in a few, you know, select directions. But nevertheless, you know, we found them and, and monitored them, and they looked, they looked sort of 20 to 25 percent less bright than we expected them to look at their given redshift. And that meant that they were 10 to 12 percent more distant. You kind of have to divide the brightness by a factor of two because, you know, it's an inverse square law type thing. But, but anyway, they, they seem to be 10 or 12 percent more distant than we had expected them to be. Right. And to get that extra distance, you needed an acceleration of the expansion in the last few billion years. But just to so be but just to be clear yeah. to for the for the listeners, a supernova that were a bit brighter would signal a deceleration in the expansion in the in uh, of the universe whereas uh, yeah. with less bright right. would would signal excel- that the universe was expanding much faster than you had initially thought, correct? Yeah, yeah, so you have to be a bit careful here because, you know, in all cases, a more distant supernova will look fainter than a nearby supernova, okay? Uh-huh. So the, the greater the distance, the fainter they look. The question then is, at those, you know, at a given redshift, some, you know, some amount of stretching of the light as it, ex- as it goes through the expanding universe, does the supernova look a bit brighter than or a bit fainter than the faint supernova image that you would expect, right? Right. Um, in just a constant expansion universe, let's say, a constant expansion rate, for a given redshift, you expect a certain brightness. And well, these guys are at high redshifts, so they're going to be faint. What we found was that they were a bit fainter than the expected faintness. And that meant that you couldn't have a constant expansion rate. You had to have a, a faster expansion rate recently. And if they had looked a bit brighter than that faint constant expansion rate expectation, then that would have meant a decelerating universe. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's it's fainter or brighter than what's expected for a constant expansion rate universe. All right. Is is that clear? Yeah, that's clear. Let me jump in right here though and 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 before you continue with that and, and just for the listener to give them a better handle on what you expect to see from a typical type 1a supernova so ordinarily light from type 1a supernovae rise and fall over the course of weeks powered by the decay of radioactive nickel produced in the explosion i i, I wasn't aware of that i you know i know that uh, that supernova produce a lot of uh, heavy elements but i didn't realize uh, this type of supernova produces nickel yeah yeah it's the it's the radioactive nickel that causes it to glow for some weeks or months. If it weren't for that radioactive nickel, the energy of the nuclear reactions that explodes the white dwarf would quickly get used up in the expansion of the material itself, in the explosion itself, and it would be a reasonably dark supernova because there wouldn't be anything left for weeks or months to glow. But most of all, these supernova are useful for these type surveys because... Uh, they are intrinsically extraordinarily bright. Yeah, a billion suns or a few billion suns. That's how, right. how well do we understand type 1A supernova? Because is there any doubt 
about their use of standard candles to help determine whether the universe's expansion is accelerating or decelerating at any given time? The answer is yes and no. We, We don't understand them perfectly well. We don't yet know whether in the binary system it's a, a, a double white dwarf or a single white dwarf with a more or less normal star transferring material to it. Uh, we're still trying to figure those kinds of things out. But, but empirically, we see that if we look at galaxies that are more distant based on looking at you know, things like Cepheid variables and other distance indicators, and we look at type 1a supernovae in them, then those type 1a supernovae look fainter. So when you look at the ones that are in galaxies of known distance, you get a very nice Hubble law. That is, the more distant ones look look um, fainter, and those are the galaxies that are moving away from us faster. So empirically, they work very, very well, especially when you make small corrections for the fact that they don't all explode with exactly the same power. You know, some of them are two billion solar luminosities, some are one billion so- solar luminosities. There, there are variations, even though they're pretty standard, you know, and we standardize them. And so once we standardize them, you get a very, very tight Hubble relationship. That is, the recession speed of a galaxy is directly proportional to its distance. That's Hubble's law, V equals H naught, Hubble's constant, times D. So empirically, they, they work so well that there's little doubt that we're using them correctly. So the results from these uh, 1998 studies, there were two papers published uh, in referee journals, indicate that at 5 billion years after the Big Bang, the Hubble's, uh, the universe's Hubble's, Hubble expansion actually is decelerating. Now, this is a, a bit confusing because uh, on one hand, you have acceleration detected caused by this repulsive dark energy. And on the other hand, you have the normal deceleration of the of the cosmos itself after the Big Bang. Is that right, or am I missing something? No, you, you've basically got it. It's just that it, for the first 9 billion years or so of the universe's expansion, galaxies were close enough together, that is, the density of normal matter and dark matter was sufficiently high that gravitational attraction dominated over the repulsive effect of this dark energy, and the universe was slowing down. But as the universe expanded and the density went down and galaxies got farther and farther apart from each other, their gravitational attraction for each other decreased. Meanwhile, the total amount of dark energy increased because its energy density is thought to be constant. So as galaxies get farther apart from each other, there's more space between them. The cumulative effect of the dark energy becomes bigger. And so eventually the repulsion dominates over the attraction and you transition from deceleration to acceleration. And during that transition moment, you, you sort of have more or less of a, just a, a coasting. In other words, uh, neither deceleration nor acceleration, but that, that lasts only a very short time, that transition. And that was roughly four or five billion years ago. So this brings us to the nature of dark energy itself. As I noted in the Cosmos magazine article uh, in, 20, in 2007, when Albert Einstein first came up with his theory of general rev- relativity, his equations pointed to the fact that the natural state of the universe was to be in flux, either expanding or contracting. But since that had yet to be confirmed observationally, Einstein tried to make his equations fit the data at hand. Thus, his cosmological constant, which he invoked in 1917, was a theoretical repulsive negative pressure, which he included to counteract the positive pressure of gravity and create a static or immutable universe. Yeah, that's basically right. Einstein and others most others thought that the universe is static, neither expanding nor collapsing. If there's just normal gravity, you know, between galaxies, even though galaxies weren't yet known at the time, but the spirit of the argument is still correct, the universe should be collapsing. And so you needed something to counter that effect, and that was a positive cosmological constant. Now, interestingly, that leads to a 
an unstable universe because if you have a static universe and a small perturbation, a small, you know, sort of a, a push makes it get a bit bigger, then the weakening gravity and the strengthening cumulative effect of this cosmological constant would have caused further expansion. Conversely, if you squish the universe a little bit or some part of the universe a little bit, then, then gravity gets stronger and the total effect of the cosmological constant gets weaker. And so that would then cause a collapse. So that was a a physically or a mathematically unstable solution that Einstein found. It, it couldn't have existed for very long in that state. But by 1932, Edwin Hubble's observations at California's Mount Wilson Observatory had shown that galaxies were redshifting or receding from us, and the universe was expanding. Thus, in a joint paper, Einstein and Willem de Sitter, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, noted that since the universe had been observed to be expanding, a cosmological constant was no longer necessary. Einstein renounced his idea, supposedly as having been the biggest blunder of his career, because had he not introduced the cosmological constant, he would have concluded, as did some other theorists, that the universe is unlikely to be in a static state, but rather is either collapsing or expanding. So I like to joke in my public talks that Einstein could have been famous. <laughs> right, of course, he was famous, but he could have been even more famous uh, by predicting that the universe is in some dynamic state. But your Nobel-winning team resurrected Einstein's cosmological constant to help explain this bizarre cosmic acceleration. And you told me in astronomy that, quote, we have been able to show that the dark energy is consistent with what is expected from the cosmological constant. But we cannot prove that dark energy is the cosmological constant because we will never have sufficient precision in our measurements. So this is a bit of a subtlety. Um, we can make measurements that show that the dark energy is not the cosmological constant by, you know, by showing that certain quantities are not what are expected of the cosmological constant, right? So if you expect the answer to be one and, and you measure one half, well, then it's not one and great. And then it's not the cosmological constant. But how do you ever show that the measurement is precisely 1.0000000, right? You can never show that a, a measurement is exactly what you expect it to be. You can only show that it isn't that number. So my point is, is that if measurements of various numbers associated with the cosmological constant become ever more accurate and precise and keep indicating consistency with the cosmological constant, great, we can pat ourselves on the back and we can say, you know, that the data are consistent with the cosmological constant. But how do you know that in 10 years or in 20 years, someone making an even better measurement won't finally show a slight deviation in one or more of those expected numbers from the expected values for the cosmological constant, right? You, you never know whether there will someday be some tiny little discrepancy that is measured. That's the sense in which you can't prove that it is the cosmological constant. So in other words, a uh, hundred years from now, we're going to still be debating about whether dark energy is caused, is the cosmological Einstein's cosmological repulsive gravity. Yeah. Except, uh, well, unless it's found before then that the measurements differ from the expected values for the cosmological constant. If, if the measurements differ, and if we trust the measurements, that is, if there are a number of different types of observational projects that show that, yep, the numbers don't agree with the cosmological constant, then, you know, we might not know what's causing, what, you know, what the dark energy is, but at least we'll know that it's not the cosmological constant. But if in 100 years there's still consistency with the cosmological constant, we won't know that it is necessarily the cosmological constant in 100 years. Just to sum up, let's re review this a bit because it is a bit confusing. Einstein, in his era, uh, knew that the universe was, it was expanding and contracting 
in a dynamic sense. Uh, yeah. He proposed a cosmological constant to counteract an ad hoc kind of uh, what factor in his equation to counteract this positive gravity uh, so that the universe would be static. Because at that time, observationally, it had not been proven that the universe was expanding. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, he did this in 1917, whereas Hubble's first published results were in 1929. And then in 1931, with his assistant, Milton Hummison, he published another paper and maybe another one in 1932. I don't remember. But anyway, this is all 12 to 14 years after Hubble, I'm sorry, after Einstein had dreamed up the cosmological constant. This is why Einstein later renounced this idea. He never really liked it in the sense that it was this arbitrary fudge factor that invoked, you know, an unknown phenomenon, cosmic, you know, repulsion. Uh, it had never been measured in any laboratory measurement that you could have a substance of this sort that repelled. And it also had to be finely tuned. It had to not only exist, but it had to be of precisely the right value to negate the gravity that would normally cause the universe to collapse. And moreover, it, it implied that the vacuum is not a vacuum, that it has a non-zero energy. So for all these reasons, Einstein never really liked it. He didn't feel comfortable with it, but he felt compelled to introduce it because of his fixation with, a, with the static or apparently static nature of the universe. But he he happily renounced it after Hubble showed, especially along with Hubbleson, with, with Hummison, that the galaxies are indeed moving away from ours. But the curious thing about all of this is that the ironic thing is that although the cosmological constants constant fits dark energy as we know it, the equations of dark energy as we know it, right? Is that is that correct? It it does fit your data? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it does fit. But All right, it could so, be something so, else. So this is the be. so this is the interesting thing, yeah. though. Einstein. It wasn't that Einstein. I mean, we now say, well, Einstein was right after all. But no, uh, I don't mean to cast aspersions on Einstein's brilliance. But Einstein just put in this const, uh, cos, cosmological constant as a fudge factor back when right. he, it, back uh, when he was trying to make the universe be static in his equations. He had no idea. Right. How could he have known or even predicted that there might be a dark energy, a repulsive force of gravity? Do you think? Yeah. Do you think that he had some clue that dark energy might exist even back then, or was it just a happenstance that he put in a fudge factor in his equation, which turned out to be something that you could use in explaining dark your dark energy equations? Yeah, it was. You know, he, he was right if it is the cosmological constant rather than some other form of dark energy. But anyway, he was right for the wrong reasons. Right. He stuck it in to make a static universe. But guess what? The universe isn't static. So uh, one way to make it accelerate is to invoke a slightly larger cosmological constant than what he needed to give a static universe. Okay. But then, you know, and we again, don't even and really again, know that uh, it is the... And let's yeah, just, we don't make, even really know that it is the cosmological constant. It might let, be some other form of dark energy. But let's just uh, be clear. A static, a static universe means a, a universe that is neither expanding or contracting. There may be local movements between galaxies in a, in a, in a local group of galaxies, but the universe, the cosmos as a whole, doesn't expand or contract. It's a static kind of thing, right? That's correct. Okay. So, uh, but you did say that dark energy was just vacuum energy to me, I believe in an article a few years back or, or whatever. And the zero, it was, you invoke zero point energy. That's the modern day interpretation of what the cosmological constant physically is. Um, Einstein didn't know that. And, you know, he had his issues with quantum physics, but if you try to explain in a, in a quantum theory, what, a non-zero energy of the vacuum could be caused by, it could be just this zero-point energy. It's caused by, you know, quantum fluctuations, basically, of the energy of the universe. But that's not necessarily what the repulsion is caused by. It, it could be some more generic dark energy, some new type of energy that's 
flowing through or fills space rather than being an intrinsic property of space itself. Do you see that distinction? It's sort of like the light in the room that I'm sitting in. Right. The electromagnetic radiation flows through the room and fills it, but it's not an intrinsic property of the space within the room. Okay? So, so you actually are saying that in the vacuum of space-time, the relative vacuum of space-time, in an expanding universe, that the force of dark energy, whatever that force is, which we don't really know, we just know what its effects are, right? Uh, the yep. force of dark energy may not be the so-called quantum foam vacuum energy that is thought to exist on 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 the quantum or subatomic, uh, you know, very subatomic levels in our co- in our basic out in space. Uh, you're saying it could be some other unknown force of energy that has never been discovered, simply percolating through space-time but which is not a part of the quantum foam of space-time, nor a part of space-time itself. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And what I think on any particular morning depends sort of on which side of the bed I get out of. You know? <laughs> I think there, uh, there, are important, there are arguable points to be made that it's a zero-point energy of the universe, just this quantum foam. But there are also arguments for why it might be some energy field one argument for the latter is, you know, by analogy with the inflation that occurred in the first trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second of the universe's existence. That was like a dark energy, but it was not the vacuum zero-point energy because it went away. It, it transformed itself actually into the material that eventually formed us. So that was a type of energy that was not an energy associated with the vacuum itself. So there's that historical precedent for thinking that the current dark energy is also not a vacuum zero-point energy. On the other hand, you know, it it could well be the zero-point energy of the vacuum. And then, of course, the energy need not have been that particular value. It could have been something else. But then you can ask, well, would would we be living in this universe if the vacuum energy were a very different value, like if it were much, much bigger than what we measure, then it turns out we wouldn't be alive because galaxies would never have formed and and we would never have formed. So then it's a bit of an anthropic argument. You know, why is it that value? Well, maybe maybe there's a multiverse. Maybe there are multiple universes and they take on all possible values of the vacuum energy. And guess what? We don't live in the ones that were not conducive to the development of complexity culminating with us. Unproven, but nevertheless a a logical realization that there may be many such things spanning a great range of properties, and uh, we happen to live on one of the good ones. So there may be things that are currently not testable, but will be testable someday and um, happen to be correct. Some theorists have said that the only way we're going to solve this mystery of dark energy is with a grand unified theory of gravity. That is, unifying quantum theory with Einstein's theory of relativity. Is that right? Yeah, probably. Um, you know, it's a quantum phenomenon that, that acts everywhere and has a, a dominant, you know, gravitational effect on the universe as a whole. So you need quantum physics and you need general relativity. That is, you need a quantum theory of gravity. A 2019 paper appearing in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics notes that observations reveal a bulk flow in the local universe, which is faster and extends to much larger scales than expected. Thus, the cosmic acceleration deduced from supernovae may be an artifact of our being in a non being non Copernican observers rather than evidence from a dominant component of dark energy in the universe. So, in other words. It could be just that this is an artifact of our uh, of where we are in, in the in the local cosmos, rather than a universal thing. What what are your thoughts? Yeah, so that's a theoretical possibility. But I'm familiar with that paper, and they made a a number of errors in their analysis and in their assumptions. So that particular paper, you know, should not be taken too seriously. For example. They took the redshifts of the supernovae from the point of view of, you know, our position 
in our solar system. That is heliocentric redshifts. They, they corrected for Earth's motion around the sun. That's great. But they didn't correct for the sun's motion around the center of our galaxy, and they didn't correct for our galaxy's motion within the local group of galaxies. It's just, you know, it's the, the wrong frame of reference. Okay. And they also didn't take into account the fact that um, the high redshift supernovae are harder to find if they're, you know, behind a sheet of dust because that makes them too faint to be observed. Whereas the nearby supernovae, well, they're bright and we can observe those that are not hidden by dust and those that are partly hidden by dust. And so you have to take subtleties like this into account. You can't just assume that the populations of supernovae at all redshifts are going to be identical. And so they, you know, they've made mistakes like that. So I, I don't um, put much um, trust in their paper. What about the idea? What about the idea that the universe is, may not be as homogeneous or isotropic as currently believed? That we may just happen to live in, in the center of a large, underdense void, and such a matter-poor void, void, the expansion rate would be larger than an overdense region. So, so in other words, we may we might yeah. simply be interpreting photons from distant supernovae as accelerating because our local void is expanding at a faster rate than the rest of the universe. Yeah, again, that's, that's certainly a theoretical possibility that should be looked into, and it has been looked into. It doesn't look like the voids that exist, and certainly not the one in which we live, are big enough to make the apparent acceleration go away. It might affect our value of lambda by 1% or 2%, but that's not going to make the whole thing go away. So people have looked into these uh, possible inhomogeneities and anisotropies and they don't they don't seem to make the the overall result uh, and, vanish. And lambda define lambda again. L- oh, lambda is the cosmological constant. So, lambda. Yeah, okay, that's, that's the a, jargon. Okay. Yeah. So in other words, uh, our our precise measurements might be off by a little bit, but the overall effect won't go away. And then there al- there's also the idea that some theorists have that uh, dark energy may simply switch on and off over time. Yeah, so that would be, you know, not a vacuum zero-point energy because that remains constant with time. That's what's meant by the cosmological constant. But uh, dark energy hypotheses like quintessence, and there are some other ones, k-essence, and all kinds of other crazy things, there are many variants. But there the dark energy can change with time, and that's an interesting possibility it should be explored further, but in any case, it looks like in the past four or five billion years, the universe has been accelerating, regardless of what it did longer ago than that. So what about dark energy showing up in Earth-based lab experiments? Uh, Christian Beck, a mathematical physicist at Queen Mary University of London, and colleagues have proposed that dark energy may be measured in the lab. The idea is that dark energy might be produced by very low-frequency electromagnetic vacuum fluctuations that are possibly detectable using current lab superconductors. Yeah, so that would be interesting. I, I don't know about those experiments. Um, I do know about something like the Casimir effect, and so that you know shows that different vacua can have different energies. Uh, how they would show vacuum fluctuations that are that are the dark energy that's driving expansion or the acceleration, I don't know, but I'm just not familiar with these experiments. I can tell you it's a very low energy density, so it's going to be very hard to you know measure. It's sort of like the equivalent of four protons per cubic meter, right? <laughs> four protons per cubic meter is the, the density of this dark energy, and wow, how you would actually measure this, I have no idea. So Kudos to them if they have a way that might possibly work. In Cosmos, I wrote that in a billion, in a hundred billion years, dark energy's accelerating effect will render the cosmic microwave background completely undetectable. And the, the CMB is simply the cosmic microwave background radiation uh, dating from 400,000 years after the Big Bang, which is as far back as we can look. And we detect that in, in the microwave and and, uh, and uh, two researchers were awarded the Nobel Prize, 
I believe, for for their discovery of the CMB. Am I wrong in that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. In the mid Penzias and Wilson. Yeah. So mm-hmm. in about two trillion years, the uh, redshift will be so great that every galaxy outside our local group of galaxies will have completely disappeared from view, cosmologist Lawrence Krauss told me. He said, uh, he says, future intelligent observers may derive a completely incorrect view of the universe. We appear to live in a special time, but by the same token, that suggests it's possible to rigorous, rigorously infer wrong things about the universe because of things one can't observe. What are your thoughts? Yeah, um, you know, that, that's basically right. I think it's even a shorter time scale, maybe, you know, half a trillion years, a few hundred billion years, and the galaxies will be so far away that we will think ours is the only one, you know? Right. Um, and we won't see the cosmic microwave background radiation either. And so we will come to a completely wrong conclusion. By the same token, as you said, it, it's conceivable that we have the wrong conclusions right now because of things we can't observe. Um, it's also true that, you know, our conclusions right now are models for, for trying to explain what we see. They're not truth with a capital T or reality with an uppercase R. Science only is trying to come up with a, a model, a description that explains what it is that we see. So I do wake up sometimes at three in the morning screaming, you know, my wife can attest to this, that, you know, dark matter and dark energy are just our 20th and 21st century Ptolemaic epicycles. You know, Ptolemy had this idea based on Aristotle's idea that, you know, Earth was at the center and all the planets go around Earth. And then to explain the backwards motion of planets like Mars, which they do for a, you know, for a little while every year or two, he had to have these little epicycles. He had to have the planets going around little circles that themselves then went around, you know, Earth. Right. And he could put epicycles on top of epicycles and he could get arbitrary agreement with the observed positions of planets. And it was a mathematical tour de force. But it was wrong in the end, as we now know. So maybe dark matter and dark energy are just the wrong ideas. That That's certainly possible as well. It's just that those are the best ideas we have so far. And, you know... It could be that we're wrong on a number of things, you, um, you, in part based on what we can't observe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you told me in 2007 that although planned ground and space-based initiatives should contribute to excellent data and will help refine observational constraints on dark energy, they probably won't solve the puzzle. Is that, so is that still your view? Yeah, that, so that goes back a little bit to what we were discussing before. You know, if we if we show that the measurements clearly differ from the predictions of the cosmological constant, then at least we'll know that it's not the cosmological constant. But if the measurements are still consistent with the cosmological constant, then we won't know whether the answer is the cosmological constant or something that looks a lot like the cosmological constant. And so, you know, since the measurements right now are pretty close to what we expect for the cosmological constant... Part of me thinks that it is the cosmological constant, but if that's true, then we won't know for sure in 100 years. In other words, we won't yet have solved the puzzle. I think we should keep on doing the observations, but I'm not particularly optimistic that we will solve the puzzle. So what's your best guess? I know you're not a theorist. You're you're an observational astronomer who is steeped in theory, but you're not technically a theorist. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So what's That's your right. best mm-hmm. guess? You know, if you're out having a beer with somebody and they say, yeah. Alex, what, what, is, what the hell is this dark energy? Uh, what, so, what, what is at the know, root of it? Is it, is it, the, is it uh, uh, inherent uh, vacuum point, uh, zero point energy, vacuum energy that's causing this repulsive force? Or is it some heretofore undetected kind of stream of energy that's pervading space time that we haven't detected yeah, yet? Yeah, so that... That's a little bit the wrong, you know, which side of the bed did I wake up on? <laughs> right. Uh, on, on balance, I'm sort of 50-50, but perhaps have a slight preference for it being the vacuum energy. And it was just one of the parameters with which the universe was born. And many other universes in the multiverse, of which I'm a fan, 
have different values differing from ours, and we live in one of the good ones. So I have this slight preference for it being the vacuum energy. But I wouldn't be terribly surprised if it were some new form of energy. And again, that's because I kind of like inflation, and inflation did indeed get driven by something that was not the cosmological constant and instead was some sort of a weird energy that then turned into the stuff that formed us. Uh, so I'm kind of a fence sitter, but if you had to push me, you know, at gunpoint to say one or the other, I would say it's a vacuum energy. So when you look up uh, at a clear sky, is dark energy or an accelerating cosmos first and foremost in your mind? What goes through your head? Well, you know, I, I certainly think about it, but first and foremost in my mind is just the magnificence of the cosmos that you know, it exists and there are these stars and galaxies and, and some of the stars exploded and produced all these heavy elements, which then, you know, became part of other clouds of gas and dust that collapsed and formed new generations of stars. And all this eventually led to these sentient beings, us, that can explore the universe and, and ask all these questions and come to some understanding of where we came from. That, to me, is the thing that I think is the, the most fascinating and the most awe-inspiring, more so even than the accelerating expansion and dark energy. Alex, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Yeah, I'm not a big social media person. Um, I do have an email address, alex at astro.berkeley.edu, but I get lots of emails, so I don't guarantee that I'll, that I'll respond. But I might respond. And then, you know, I have a number of um, video courses through a company called The Great Courses that people can look into. And, and they get much more of the observations and the theory behind all this. And then there's a, a textbook that I co-authored with Jake Pasikoff. It's called The Cosmos, Astronomy in the New Millennium. And you can get that from Cambridge University Press. And then I, I've given a lot of public talks, you know, many of which are online, um, and I've done a number of interviews. So, you know, I, I'm out there. Uh, various things I've said and done can be found online uh, or in these courses that I've produced. But alex.astro.berkeley.edu, I guess, is a way to, to contact me. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at B. Dormany on my Twitter feed. Alex Filipinko, thanks for helping us better understand dark energy. My pleasure, Bruce. Thanks for doing these Cosmic Controversy podcasts. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at B. Dormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time. Clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>